Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. Since we have no real sports to talk about now and are in need of real sports-like distractions... I am turning to one of my other favorite activities, watching movies, and specifically right now, sports movies. I grew up in the 1980s when March Madness took the NCAA tournament to another level. There, the improbable victories of NC State in 1983, Villanova in 85, and Kansas in 88. Michael Jordan taking his first steps to becoming a household name with his championship-winning shot for North Carolina in 82. All of those great memories. Like you, I have vivid memories of them all. Also, in the 1980s, I began my broadcasting career announcing high school basketball games in Middletown, Pennsylvania, and the thrill of district and state tournament play, well, that became a very real passion as well. And so with all that in mind, it brings me to, in lieu of real March Madness, what I consider the best basketball movie of all time, hey, I'm not alone, but it's also one of my four or five favorite movies, period, of all time, and that's Hoosiers. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, my guest is Angelo Pizzo, who wrote the screenplay for Hoosiers. And his follow-up wasn't bad either. It was called Rudy. <laughs> if you've seen Hoosiers, this is going to be a treat. If you haven't, hit pause right now. Go see it, and then come back. I promise you it's worth it. Pizzo was born and raised in Indiana, and Hoosiers was directed by his Indiana college classmate, David Anspaugh. It's the story of a coach with a troubled past, played by Gene Hackman, who arrives in small town Indiana in the early 1950s. It's a story based on the small town heroes of Milan, Indiana, and their fabled run to their state's championship in 1954. I don't need to, need to explain more about this now, do I? I mean, Hoosiers is a classic. I actually have an original framed movie poster hanging on the wall in my office, and you'll hear me talk to Pizzo about that. In this episode, which I admit ran way longer than normal because I was having too much fun talking to Angela about this, there are some very real Yankees connections here, too. We learned, for example, that George Steinbrenner's favorite film may not have been Pride of the, Pride of the Yankees or Patton after all, uh, but there is a very real good chance it was Hoosiers, and you hear a great story involving Steinbrenner and Lee Iacocca. And did you know that Angelo Pizzo thinks the best screenplay he's ever written is a Mickey Mantle biopic that's never been produced more than 20 years after he wrote it? That's right. The man who wrote Hoosiers and Rudy thinks the best thing he's ever written is about Mickey Mantle, and no one has turned it into a movie yet. You'll hear all the details and all that and more in my conversation with Angelo Pizzo, recorded in February from his home in Bloomington, Indiana. 
Angelo, first thing I want to ask you is about your meeting with George Steinbrenner, who for years would tell people that his favorite movie was Pride of the Yankees, but you found out different. Tell me about where and when you ended up in George Steinbrenner's suite and what he told you about watching Hoosiers. Well, I had read about a story um, that took place having to do with George Steinbrenner and Lee Iacocca. They were on a private plane to Rome from New York for some venture, some adventure, or some business meeting. And um, George told Lee that he insisted that he watch this movie called Hoosiers. He had um, a box of videotapes in in his plane, and he said the rule of anybody's going to fly in his plane, they ha- if they haven't seen the movie, they have to watch it. <laughs> well, that uh, he ended up watching it not only on the way there, but on the way back, and he was gifted with a videotape. And George uh, said that he buys, uh, you know, uh, a box of them and does that to everybody who gets in the plane. And uh, he had seen it over 200 times. Now, that was an article that I, I had read. And then subsequently, I think it was about two years after that, I was working on a screenplay about Mickey Mantle, and they were honoring him. It was Mickey Mantle Day, and his family uh, was invited to the suite uh, as uh, along with me because I was working with the family on the script. Mm-hmm. And it was there that uh, I talked to George, and he described to to me why the why the the, the movie meant so much to him. Um, first of all, he grew up in a small town like the town Hickory in the movie Orville, which is also the same hometown as Bob Knight. Hmm. Um, he went to Culver Academy, military academy, which is uh, a, a prep school at, in Indiana, um, northern Indiana. And um, he ended up um, going to Purdue and uh, ended up playing football, being a coach, assistant, graduate assistant. So he was his roots were, were tied to the place. And it, 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 I think it affected him in terms of his connection to where he grew up and, of course, the world of sports and his own experience in Midwest sports. So I think there were a lot of layers to it. Uh, that meant a lot to him. I'll get back to the mantle stuff a little bit later, but George Steinbrenner can't be the only famous person in the sports world who's come up to you and shared with you stories about how much they love that movie. No, that's true. Um, a, a lot of uh, you know basketball uh, coaches uh, have have talked about uh, have talked to us about the, the film. Um, Pat Riley's one. Del Harris, who was coach at uh, at, um, at the, for the Lakers. Uh, um, I, I can't remember was it in the nineties mm-hmm. and, and he actually is grew up in, in a small town and, and went to, to, uh, to high school here in Indiana. And he had a play, uh, for the Lakers. They called the picket. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, over the years we've heard, we've heard a lot of, uh, a lot of people talk about the film. Um, but, um, uh, you, I think it's the people uh, and from the Midwest, who it has the greatest meaning for. Yeah, and listen, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. my town, Middletown, Pennsylvania, 
won a state championship in 1968, led by Dave mm-hmm. Tordzik, a future NBA player with the uh, with Portland Trailblazers. He was on their 77 championship team. I had a chance mm-hmm. recently to speak to him about you know winning the 1968 state championship, and it's only in the fictitious era. It's only you know what 14, 15 years after where your movie takes place. Um, right. It's but it's a lot of the same experiences of coming from a small town, going to a big city gym that he went to in Pittsburgh, an arena that he had never played before. So even if it's kind of central to Indiana, film there made by a couple of Indiana uh, sons of Indiana, it still connects with so many people from so many different parts of the country. Yes, I think, uh, I mean, people ask uh, me all the time, what do I think uh, are the reasons that it is sustained over the years uh, in in our culture, our media culture, and that um, it it hasn't <laughs> it hasn't died uh, in going into the dustbin of uh, film history, yeah. like most movies, and and uh, I, I think there are probably a number of reasons, and I'm I'm not clear on them. I can't be objective at all about sure. about the film um, because it's so personal to me. But I think one a couple there are a couple reasons. One is it's not if you look at uh, I was thinking about this the other day because I saw the trailer to Top Gun the new Top uh-huh, Gun movie sure. and I happened to come across the old Top Gun movie and I was watching it and it seemed like a parody of Top Gun <laughs> right, right. it was with the hairdos and the music and it, it, um, it, it and that was very au courant that was very hip at the time sure um, and but in the case of Hoosiers, uh, we 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 set it almost in a magical time. So Hoosiers doesn't date because it was already dated. Sure, um, you know it's a film set in the past, and we we imbue it with a certain I think tonality of nostalgia, and the nostalgia is around something that I could best describe as the last vestige of true regionalism. Hmm. And I think that's before television homogenized our culture and uh, that there was a world that was self-contained because media didn't penetrate. Um, Television hadn't arrived in movie theaters or only in the bigger cities or not a city city as small as as that Hickory Mm -hmm. or Milan that we based it on. And, um, it was, it was a time where the, the institutions were, were solid and they were the structure and the foundation of daily life, and that is the school, the church, the team, and uh, the town. Um, we live in much more complicated lives now, and our world is much more complicated. And I just think that there is something, um, there's something about the film that people... The simplicity to it that people want to go back and wish, or they sorry they they never were part of it, or they missed what they were old enough they missed that time. So I think there's a lot of things at work there, um, but you know it's also a kind of a an underdog film, and a lot of times those things work. Because everybody yeah. thinks themselves as an underdog. <laughs> you, you even you even wrote a line about you know the simplicity of it when Gene Hackman is giving that interview after they've they've uh, advanced to the states, 
And uh, he says, my boys only know basketball, school, and farming, probably in that order. And I, yeah. I think it'd be hard pressed to find anybody in this country who, you know, still lives with that much simplicity, given, like you said, the time period that we're in now. Yeah, you know, something I actually took that line from um, a uh, uh, interview with a coach that I was doing research on in the fifties. It wasn't a Milan coach, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it wasn't actually my line. So I knew oh. that there was a, something <laughs> authentic about it. Very good. You, uh, you touched on something a moment ago, just about the underdog story and, uh, and how that resonates, but I still feel like, like sports movies. Listen, I was born in 1970, so I was perfect age. I was a high school kid when Hoosiers came out. Um, but I feel like sports movies were still not, you know, the norm in Hollywood. You know, Rocky had come out in the mid seventies, uh, and the sequels were more sports movies than the original was, I felt like. But, um, I feel like at a certain point, sports movies became more in vogue and perhaps Hoosiers set a template for the more modern sports movies. And I'm thinking along the lines of miracle, remember the Titans and they're both, you know, set on, on uh, real life events. But do you feel like you, you established that by writing a template for a sports movie? Oh, I don't, I I don't think so. Um, I, I don't really look at it that way. I don't put, uh, Hoosiers in that kind of uh, context, um, that's that's for you or <laughs> other media yeah. writers to, to, to <laughs> make a judgment about. I will say this, though. I was, uh, high, we were made highly aware of the landscape of, of sports films before Hoosiers was made because we submitted it to every studio and production company and on and on and on um, for three years and were turned down, and one of the reasons we were turned down was that there wasn't a history of any basketball movies ever making money. Sure. But in part, there was not much of a history of basketball movies to begin with. <laughs> right. So, so uh, you know, the, the powers to be are always nervous about doing something new and different, and uh, that doesn't have a proven track record. So we were, we were fighting that uphill battle. And if anything, I think the fact that Hoosiers was successful, it opened um, the, the possibilities for other films uh, like it to get made. I think you, you looked at one point uh, in, in one interview I saw somewhere, it was almost as if you called it like a love letter to Indiana and growing up there. Um, mm. And and it shows even from the very beginning, like the the opening title tells you that it's Indiana 1951, not a specific place. It's just the entire state. Um, but another one of my favorite movies is Breaking Away, which was also filmed mm-hmm. in Bloomington. And I'm curious as an Indiana guy, you know, what did you admire about that film and, and what that told about the story of Indiana? Well, that film really was a, um, a, a critical factor in me writing uh, Hoosiers because I was working as a uh, uh, an executive and uh, development executive supervising supervising production development of uh, of movies of the week. I started off in that world and then ended up going into uh, feature films and worked for uh, Warner Brothers and Fox and then Timeline Films was the last company. And at that juncture, I had uh, um, an idea that I wanted to do a movie about the relationship of basketball, high school basketball, and the people in Indiana. I thought it was unique, and I knew that there was a central kind of folk myth, um, kind of of fundamental 
story, legendary story of the of the Milan team mm-hmm. that might be a starting place for it. And what happened is that the president of the company that I was working for said, go for it. And um, I wanted to write, I always wanted the movie to be called Hoosiers. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find a writer because I wasn't a writer. I wanted to find a writer that um, was from the state of Indiana. And I wanted to make, it was really critical to me that the state and the place be a character, you know, Mm -hmm. a a fundamental um, starting point for the film itself. And I wanted it to be layered with details that were true, authentic, organic. And I will say this about the reason I felt strongly about it, and I also wanted to call it Hoosiers, I didn't want it to be breaking away. Mm-hmm. And because I thought breaking away had some fundamental flaws for me that were would not work for the movie Hoosiers. And 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 first of all, let me say I think it's a wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great screenplay, which won the Academy Award as well it should. And I got to know the screenwriter, Steve Tessich. Uh, the late, great Steve Tessich. Mm. And uh, the problem I had with the film was there was a lot that, in it that I didn't recognize that had anything to do with Indiana or Bloomington. Okay. It was like cast from, uh, I don't know who those people were. I didn't grow up with those people. <laughs> right. They weren't They weren't stone cutters. Uh, you know, they weren't what they used to call cutters. Or I mean, we, they were called stonies. Mm. Uh, that was the nickname for uh, people working the stone mill, those kind of what generically, sometimes pejoratively called killbillies, but uh, clodbusters, something like that. But it was never cutters. That was just a change in the script because the word stonies indicated maybe, you know, they were smoking marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't work. At any rate, and I I talked to Steve, I said, you know, my only problem with the film is like, who are these people? They're not Hoosiers. Yeah. They didn't cast Hoosiers. Um, and um, and they, they feel like they're dropped in from another planet. Hmm. And I said, this could be Eugene, Oregon. I mean, it could be any generic college town. It's not Indiana. And he said, well, you have to understand, the, the director of the film, Peter Yates, took the job he had never heard of the state of india <laughs> he, didn't, he, he didn't know what people were like and he didn't he didn't care and you know I, it didn't matter in terms of how successful that movie was it was going to work no matter what no mm-hmm. where but for hoosiers i wanted all to be integrated i wanted all to be seamless i wanted the people i wanted someone the people who were going to make this movie had to knew, know how People walk, talk, chew gum, and the accents had to be right. Everything had to be right. And uh, for 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 my aesthetic of what I thought was important in, in terms of making it work. And that's why I ended up writing it myself and, you know, hiring my best friend and college roommate from a small town in Indiana, mm-hmm. David Anspaugh, to direct it. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, perhaps if, if uh, Breaking Away had not had that w- those weird casting issues, yeah. um, I might have hired somebody else to write it. Wow. 
Wow, lucky for us then, huh? I wanted to ask you about Gene Hackman because I'd never heard this one story. And listen, it's it's part of the famous story uh, of the movie that Jack Nicholson wanted to do it, had to back mm-hmm. out, and Gene Hackman ended up as Coach Norman Dale. Uh, the one that I had never heard before was on the last day of filming, as Hackman's leaving town and heading back to L.A., he, he basically told you and David Anspaugh that he wanted to forget the movie was ever was ever shot. Yeah, it was something along that line. Um, I, I think that he said, um, I'm sure this movie was meaningful to you, and I'm sure you'll remember it the rest of the life. Probably no one will see it outside of the state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And um, and I hope to forget I ever was ever here <laughs> by the time I left by the time I left. By the time my plane lands in Indiana or in, in Los Angeles, yeah. I hope to have forgot, forgotten uh, my two months here in this miserable state. Uh, no such luck. Um, that was Gene for you. Yeah, he was. He was. Now the funny thing is, of course, um, you know, uh, here uh, interview that that I saw prior to him retiring. I think he retired like four or five years ago, and um, they. One of the questions was, when people see you, come up to you and talk to you, what role do they associate with you with any of the others? And he said, is it uh, Popeye Doyle from Brent yeah. Next? And he said, no, it's it's the coach and Hoosiers. That's fantastic. So, you know, listen, none of us knew. Sure. None of us knew. that. It, and when he said that, we had no confidence in the movie. We had no. Con- <laughs> we thought that well, he knew more about the film business than we did. Right. And we thought, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe no one will see it outside of the. the we'll have our own private screens here in the state, and that may be it. <laughs> I I think that Norman Dale is such an interesting character because there are so many things about him that you don't like. There are so many things not to like about him. He's not warm and fuzzy, but there's still something about him that makes you believe he's fundamentally right and that you want to root for him. Well, I think it's a combination of who, uh, you know, every every great part is uh, what's on the script and what the actor brings. And, um, you know, that's a way of describing Gene, too. <laughs> um, but also it's a way of pairing the character that I wrote with that was based on Bob Knight. Mm-hmm. You know, I took um, everything I knew about who he was, this complicated genius of a man who was not the most likable human being in the world, but, boy, he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Rick Barnes, who I talked to not too long ago, was coaching Texas when I was making a movie down there four years ago, and he said that he considered, and Rick, he, Rick is now coaching at Tennessee, considers Bob Knight the greatest coach, football, basketball, baseball, college, or pro in the history of sports. Mm. That That's how highly he's regarded in some circles among coaches. So I considered the possibility, what would happen if a guy who had these flaws, mm-hmm. like a temper, yeah. and he lost his temper and punched out a player early in his career, uh, he was kept from doing what he does best. You know, and and is end up going into the navy. So it was just an idea I had, and and that's the character I came up with. Um, a very quick side story. Mm-hmm. I had never met Bob Knight, and um, he had heard. Well, there was the the, the season that um, Hoosiers came out was 1987, oh, yeah. and uh, it was the same year 
that Indiana yep. um, surprisingly actually got into the Final Four. And we, it turned out that the Academy Awards and the uh, National Championship game were on the same night. Oh, wow. And we were nominated for two Academy Awards. And mm-hmm. we had tickets and we had our tuxes, we had our limousines, everything. And Indiana was playing the semi-state or semi-final against UNLV, and there were 14-point underdogs. UNLV was, UNLV was undefeated that year, so I didn't think there was going to be a conflict at all. And then they end up beating UNLV <laughs> by 14 yeah. themselves. And um, that put us in a tremendous dilemma. And, uh, and I, I mean, I grew up. My love is not high school basketball. My passion is Indiana University because I grew up two blocks from the, the old uh, field house where okay. they practiced and played. And um, so for me to miss an Indiana play, because I saw I was in person for the other two national championship games, and I knew I couldn't be in person, but to not be able to watch it on television was killing me. <laughs> so I grew up, I, I got up on Monday morning, and the uh, Academy Awards and, and state national finals were that night. And um, I called David. And I said, I can't do it. I can't go to the Academy Awards. I have to watch this on television. <laughs> so we both, we had a little party. We end up, you know, putting a television on with the Academy Awards and one on with the, uh, with the uh, game. And that's the game that Keith Smart hit that last second shot yep. and, and beat Syracuse and won the third national championship under Bob Knight. Now, uh, I'd gotten a call from the local paper here asking me, what, knowing how much I was a uh, fanatic, and they asked me what I was going to do. And I told them we were staying home watching it and, uh, and passing on the Academy Awards. <laughs> well, in the paper the next day was Indiana um, wins the national championship, and right midway was uh, it was uh, Hoosiers creators stay home, watch game, don't go to Oscars. <laughs> well, that was a that was a big deal to to. He was reading the paper the next day, um, or the day after. I, I yeah, they flew back that night, and uh, um, uh, he said, "Well, these are true Indiana fans." <laughs> next time there, it was talking to um, assistant coach who we knew in college, a guy named Joby Wright. He yeah. said, "Next time these in college, tell them I need to meet them." So I didn't really get back there until that following fall, um, and then I was invited to practice, very much closed practices, and end up going to this practice, and I was sitting in the stands. He never, Bob Knight never says anything to me. He looks up and glares at me the entire time, <laughs> like he's really angry. Yeah. And uh, I, I, uh, I finally got such bad vibes from him that uh, when the practice ended, I just left, and then a manager runs up and grabs me and says, Coach Knight needs to see you. So I go down and I'm I'm standing next to him. He's talking to somebody else. He's a formidable figure. He was like six six and you know two fifty or whatever. And um, I'm standing there. He finally turns around. He reaches his hand out, and I think he wants to shake my hand. And so I reach my hand out, and he shakes his hand. No, he's not going to. He's not going to shake my hand. Hmm. He said, "I want money." I said, "What are you talking <laughs> about? You owe me money." I said, "For what?" You stole all my dialogue for the film. So he got it. Anyway, that was his joke. I mean, he put his arm around me, and, and then I ended up spending the next 10 hours with a guy. Wow. We went, he said, what are you doing for dinner? I said, I'm going home to 
stay uh, uh, to have dinner with my parents. He said, "No, you're not. We're going on a recruiting trip to Chicago." Oh wow! So uh, you know, I got in the car, flew in, a, you know, the plane up to Chicago, and that was that was uh, that's another set of stories altogether. I'm but, sure that's uh, <laughs> that's terrific. Uh, it looks like you made the right decision then by staying home and and uh, and watching on TV at uh, both screens at once. That's a well, right it, call. it was where my heart was. Uh, I, I'm passionate about making the movies, but awards are awards. They're they're, uh, sure. they're something that you just put on your you know on yourself. We didn't win, by the way, but, yeah. but they, and they were we weren't nominated. It was uh, Dennis, Dennis Hopper, Hopper yeah. and uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. But the 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 point is that uh, you know I still feel that way. I still would rather have Indiana. I really I'd re- I would. I would not go to another Oscars if Indiana got into the national finals. Hey, I have another question for you about the character of Norman Dale. If you're writing this in 2020 and times have changed, I yeah. understand it was a period piece, but do you think you could have written the backstory of a coach that punched a kid? Because I know that you said in another interview somewhere that you the Woody Hayes incident kind of spurred yeah. that part of it, but way, the, where we are in society now, could you have, could you have made that the character flaw? Um, yeah, probably, um, probably that's a very good point. I'd never thought about that. Uh, it might be, uh, a lot more questionable. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, there, there, it, it, yeah, I w- I'm not, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but the, the sensitivity around, uh, around the pay, uh, coach uh, player relationship in that regard would make, Make us look at him maybe even more negatively than yeah. we would anyway, and and think that he maybe not deserve another chance, and and uh, that it was irredeemable. I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard to say. I, but there's no question it would be different. I had sent you a picture of one of the. It's the only original movie poster that I have hanging on my wall. I do have a reprint of The Untouchables, but I bought mm-hmm. several years ago. I bought um, an original. Uh, movie poster of Hoosiers, only it's not called Hoosiers. And you you told us a few moments ago why it was important for you to call the movie Hoosiers. Mm-hmm. But the poster I have is a European movie poster, and it's called Best Shot. And not mm-hmm. only is it the the title that got me, but I saw the tagline underneath, and it's the old you know attributed to Vince Lombardi quote: "Winning isn't everything; it's the only thing." And having watched the movie probably as many times as George Steinbrenner, you know, you recognize that that's not anything close to what the movie is about. So the poster is funny to me in that regard. Um, and it's this of this generic, it's this generic farm boy throwing two hands in the air with a little tiny inset picture of, of Gene Hackman, nothing else from the movie itself. Um, but as you explained to me, uh, in brief, that's really just the difference between European marketing and American marketing, huh? Yeah, they're, they're, they are a, a separate marketing and distribution uh, companies. And one of the things that we got, the, the, the companies that, that finance the film, Hemdale, had an overall deal with Orion Pictures, and Orion Pictures did not want to release the film. They were not, they didn't believe in it. They didn't want to put money into it. And they hated the title. <laughs> and the biggest they want, they kept on. Part of it was because it wasn't translatable overseas. Uh, but part of it, they just thought nobody outside of Indiana would would know about it, which is kind of stupid anyway. <laughs> People know the team, but yeah. this is the way they were thinking. They're not 
basketball fans. They were not sports fans. And uh, so it, we, uh, the only way in which we got, they wanted to call it not best shot. They wanted to call it the last shot. Okay. Which I thought was, you know, they thought it was a play on multiple yeah. We had multiple meetings, but sure. uh, I hate, we hated it. It was just a terrible <laughs> title. And uh, so we ended up having a test screening uh, in Irvine, and we scored the highest in the history of Orion Pictures. We were like 94. Mm. And um, part of uh, the win was getting the title. The <laughs> 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 um, president of the Orion Pictures, Mike Medavoy, said, okay, and we, we actually did the, the film that we distributed or the film that we tested was two hours and uh, 20 minutes. Uh-huh. So he said, okay, guys, I'll give you, I'll give you the title. You got to give me 20 minutes out of that movie. It's too long. Although the movie worked like gangbusters. Yeah. So unfortunately we had to cut 20 minutes and then it was painful uh, for anybody who was listening, who really cares and would be interested to see the last 30 minutes of the movie cut out. Um, the 20th anniversary uh, DVD um, release of the movie has a second disc with, with those 30 minutes. Yep. Uh, 30 minutes of scenes that we did cut out. And our commentary on why what they meant yep. and why they were there in the first place and how sad we were that they were gone. Yeah, well, and, but why we had to cut them, and it and it answers the the most important question. You know, how did Buddy get back on the team? There yeah, is a well, scene that, that addresses that, that. That will be answered if you go and take a look, because yep. there's a scene where Buddy comes to uh, comes to coach and asks him for another chance. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. But we had to get it under two hours. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and we were hoping people wouldn't notice. <laughs> but, of course, they, over the years, they certainly have. Of course we noticed. Uh, do you yeah. have a favorite scene? Do you have a favorite line of dialogue? Something that just, you know, still tickles you after all these years? You know, I don't. Uh, it's not like I have a, any kind of a, a, a appreciation. I, I'm actually... They're, you probably know the movie better than I do. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie in like six or seven years. And wow. when it's on TV, I just I run right through it. Yeah. When you've seen it as many, when you've lived it, you've breathed it for years and, and, and intensely while you're making the movie and then you're in the editing room and seeing the same thing, hundred same scene a hundred <laughs> times and then uh, in different configurations and then, then, then taking it around, we kind of, we, we kind of hand, sold it um uh, around the country um you, I, you just get to a point where i can't i can't even look at it anymore wow. you know and and when i did sit down to watch it i think every every five or ten years i watch it in a only i'll never watch it on television but uh if we are invited for a special screening they had an opening of the indian university cinema and they had new projection um uh a facility, a, a new, a projection system that was uh, extraordinary, and it's all, almost like watching the movie for the first the first time. I was actually struck on how many clunky lines of dialogue there were. No, no <laughs> I, kidding. I just wanted to go in and rewrite something. <laughs> I, I, so I saw the flaws and I saw the things that didn't work, um, but I appreciated um, uh, a lot of things. And, and and what I did is I. You look back on something like that, and the appreciation comes down to often just how lucky we were mm-hmm. in casting the right people. 
we just, uh, you know, we, we, we had a really, cha- we had a challenging time. We didn't have much money. So we had to hire like 95% of the, the cast in Indiana. We wanted to, but we also knew that they were going to be amateurs and they were going to be hard. It was going to be hard to make them believable. But you know what? Great kids, the, the townspeople, everybody, the extras, it was, uh, we, uh, I'm so glad we stuck by our guns and, and did it, did it our way. You know, as uh, now that I have you here, it, it occurs to me there's a there's a question that I, I've probably wanted to ask since the first time I saw the movie, and you're the person to explain it to me. The one part that I that I still have a hard time figuring out what exactly it meant when they're drawing up that final play in the timeout before the chin, mm-hmm. you know, before the final shot. You know, Gene Hackman uh, draws up the play for for Merle on the picket fence using Jimmy as a decoy, and the team kind mm-hmm. of stands there, hands on their hips, and they 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 have this look of disbelief about them when Jimmy utters the only the second line he's got in the whole movie is "I'll mm-hmm. make it," and the idea that the team all of a sudden at that moment lacked confidence, I I still am not sure what that was all about. Can you explain that to us? No, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, about co- lacking of confidence. It, it, it was about their belief that Jimmy was the guy that needed to take the last shot. Okay. And that they, uh, it, it was a kind of a collective. Oh, we grew up together. We know this is his time. You uh, know, okay. it's like uh, you know, <laughs> it's like if Steph Curry was a, with a bunch of uh, uh, average uh, college players, and you drew up a, a final shot for. You know, <laughs> right, right. the fourth guy, yeah. you know, on the team, you know, whatever, and using Steph Curry as a decoy. Sure, okay. Well, you know, no, it's Steph Curry time. <laughs> right. It's, it, it's uh, Jimmy Chitwood time. Yeah. So the point of that scene was to show his growth, that he was open not to do everything his way all the time. Uh, so, okay. The coach. That was the that was the meaning of that scene. I gotcha, I gotcha. It's in and the the winning shot, you know, and you've described this a number of times. It's modeled and designed right out of the the Milan High Championship game. Bobby Plump, who's the original Jimmy Chitwood, and uh, and uh, I guess every everybody had to improvise the way you did that final shot. Um, uh, David Anspaugh tells a story. He forgot to tell all the extras in the crowd what to do. And they just did what naturally they were going to do. Yeah, we forgot to tell them what to do <laughs> in part because Morris Felinus, who played Jimmy Chitwood, kept on throwing up brick after brick and clanking uh, the, all the rehearsals. He didn't hit one rehearsal shot. And, uh, you know, even Gene Hackman was concerned. You need to move him in uh, closer. Uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I think the, the crowd was nervous. The crowd was <laughs> wanting yeah. this to work. Yeah. So when we had all five cameras finally rolling and we were just going to probably cut it in the camera if it didn't work out because Morris was nervous. He had never played in front of that many people. Before. Yeah. He had never played in high school. So when he hit that shot, the place went nuts just because they had this release of tension and they just naturally having been to, they were all fans anyway, yeah. basketball fans. Uh, and they knew what to do. Uh, they they were you know, totally invested and committed. The uh, and it's funny too when you say that he kept missing because another one of my favorite scenes is the one in the schoolyard 
when Gene Hackman comes out and tells him, I don't care whether you play on the team or not. And you kind of gave away some of the secrets of of that film, of that scene, when you you Mm -hmm. loosen the rims, you took some of the air out of the ball. Um, But he's making shot after shot, and the only Mm -hmm. one he misses is when Hackman hits him with that line, I don't care whether you play on the team or not, and then he misses. Is that intentional? Was that written in, or is that just the dumb luck of of making the movie? That was the dumb luck of making the movie. (laughs) It really was. Yeah. I mean, he hit all those shots. You could see it in the long shot. And then he did miss it, you know, uh, when that final line was, was delivered. And we knew it was perfect. We knew it was, uh, it wasn't intentional that he missed it. No, oh, not yeah. at all. Wow. Um, you're answering some some of these long unanswered questions. That's perfect. I love it. <laughs> um, I want to know. You know, you you obviously you went on to make Rudy after this uh, several years mm-hmm. later, and uh, again mega successful, uh, and to this day holds up as one of these iconic sports movies. But I heard you say in an interview that you're you know you were then burned out on sports. And you've kind of talked about it now. But are there any recent sporting events or ones that you can remember that are in your mind that maybe kind of evoke a little of that same drama that if you ever found the passion to write about, you would want to write about this event? Listen, I get, um, I get offered all sorts of projects. So <laughs> many things come my way that are in the vein of Hoosiers and Rudy and sports films in general. And there, there are a lot of great ones that yeah. there are. And um, it, it was only about two years ago where I finally just, had it. I directed a, a movie, uh, you know, a 20 plus million dollar film that I wrote in the university uh, based around a kid who changed the culture at the University of Texas in 1968-69 called yep. Bio American. Yep. And that took up my life for, for two years. And one of the things that I swore I would never do is after the movie is I'm never going to take another film where I have to write a locker room speech. Oh, wow. (laughs) I've just done every variation. I've done every twist and turn and trope, and I'm burned. I just, I can't do it anymore. (laughs) I don't want to do it anymore. It's not just uh, being hyper-concerned about uh, repeating the cliched moments from other sports films. It's my own, too. So it's a double whammy. Um, So I don't really... I will say this parenthetically about what, in terms of your, your question, there was a story that came my way. Um, this kid who was, um, um, a Chinese, uh, he dreamed, he grew up in China dreaming of playing basketball Mm -hmm. and there was no avenue for him. They don't have sports teams on high schools and, uh, and he didn't take up basketball till he was 14 because he had no skills. Uh, and uh, uh, interesting time before that, uh, interesting life. And then he ends up finding his way to Canada and, um, and, and ends up getting, trying out for four straight years to the University of British Columbia. Anyway, it's a story right out of, it's, it's, it's another variation or a version of Rudy. Okay. But it's a great story. You know, and it's like, wow, did that really happen? It's almost like I wouldn't have written Rudy if it wasn't true, of course. You can't make that stuff up. Yeah. And this is one, one of those. So what I did in, in, in that situation was I said to the kid, I'll tell you what. I will, I'll find another writer and I'll supervise that writer. I can't do it myself. 
so we made a deal, and there's another writer writing first draft right now. And, oh. uh, and I've been involved in, uh, you know, um, the, at every stage, uh, you know, had we went did research together. We went to China together. We went to Vancouver and um, talked about the film, talked about the film, talked about the approach, talked about a treatment, so on and so on and so forth. So I'm sort of, it is, I'm a consultant mentor producer okay on it okay but that's my only way of that's the only way in which i'll do a sports film now you uh you if i don't have to write it (laughs) (laughs) that's a good way for uh, that's i think that's a good lesson for all of us if we don't have to actually do all the work we'd love to be involved right Uh, yes exactly yeah you had mentioned uh near the beginning about the mickey mantle project that you had worked on um at one point the uh, the stories about that project had young. This is over twenty years ago. Young Brad mm-hmm. Pitt, Matt Damon attached mm-hmm. as potentially playing Mickey Mantle. What was the essence of of this script, and what happened to it? Well, um, this is, in my judgment, the the best script I've ever written out of the thirty four, thirty five. Um, it's the one that's gotten the best response, and this is the one that's been closest to being made probably about seven or eight times. I've always described uh, getting a movie made as like uh, opening up a lock with 15 tumblers. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to 13 and 14 on this one, <laughs> and I couldn't quite push it uh, all the way open. There are a couple reasons, um, which I'll get into. But the, the backstory is that um, I was called by an executive at TriStar and said, we have just bought the rights to Mickey Mantle's autobiography called The Mick. Mm-hmm. And um, would you be interested? I said, well, absolutely. He was my childhood hero. And uh, I was a big baseball fan, big Yankee fan, loved the Yankees. In fact, I kept on begging my dad to, to for a pilgrimage from Bloomington, Indiana to New York. We yeah. finally did it in 1961. Uh, saw a doubleheader with Kansas City. It was uh, such a meaningful experience to me that I remember hopping out of the, the stands and grabbing grass and dirt <laughs> and putting it in uh, envelopes to say, you know, that I was there. Wow. Hallowed ground. Um, and uh, a security guard running after me. <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, I, I read the book, but I, I didn't see any, I didn't see a movie there. I just, it was a collection of anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I knew, everybody knew the basic story, you know, that uh, his dad and, you know, working him out left, right, switch hitter, so on and so forth. And um, I was very well aware of his history, and I'd heard rumors about his drinking and carousing and all of that. And it was in there, some of it, um, a lot of it. Uh, but but um, still, there didn't seem to be a last act. There didn't seem to be, yeah, what's this all about? Or, I mean, what, what's the movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the TriStar said to me, uh, well, we would like to get you and Mickey together and because um, he said that there's things in, that he didn't put in the book that maybe you'd be interested in. That really intrigued me. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, I said, okay. Um, I flew with an executive to New York, and it was that time. He told I. I said, why was I called? You know, he said, well, we were in discussion with Mickey. We wanted to get 
we wanted to find a writer who fit his sensibility. And we were asking him about what movies he had seen lately did he like. And he said Hoosiers was about his favorite movie he'd seen in like 10 years. Wow. And you, you have no idea how much that meant. That was like really special. Yeah. So I was feeling really great, really positive, and excited to hear all these, these stories. We end up going to a, a restaurant. I can't remember. It's an Italian restaurant. And um, he was sitting in the back. There was a security guard to make sure no one approached the table. And he was so drunk at that time. Mm. And I... I he kept on ordering, I'll never forget, Stoli on the Rocks with a Twist. Hmm. And um, I tried to keep up with him, but then I started getting a little blurry-eyed. <laughs> uh, but the stories that he started to spin were really kind of not really, they weren't movie stuff. They, he would tell me all these stories about, uh, let's say they were having to do with women and they were X-rated. Yeah. And then he would say, oh, well, you can't use that. You can't use that, you know, right. um, I'm married. But he was he was with another woman at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I was kind of confused by the whole thing. But then I, I, I was waiting and uh, couldn't wait to talk to him about his dad because I thought that there was something really fundamental about um, – <laughs> I, I, I felt that there was a, a complicated relationship there mm-hmm. and um, that w- it wasn't just uh, all positive. And, and I brought his dad up and, his, and he kind of changed. And he said, I really don't want to talk about my dad, um, but I will say he's one of the greatest men who ever lived, I, I ever knew. Mm. And that's, 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 all, that's all you need to know. And that's when I knew that, Whatever hole was in his soul, whatever pain he was carrying, I felt was directly connected to his dad because the only time that he really became raw and sensitive and vulnerable. And he got so drunk afterwards, he said, I, I have to go home. Let's meet for lunch. And then, um, then we, so we met for lunch. And I was telling him, I said, I can't, I don't know what the movie is. I can't get anything out of him. And I hope he's, you know, now maybe sober, we'll, we'll have a better time. Well, he had, he was like, he ordered like five Bloody Marys oh, wow. in the course of like 15 minutes after oh, sitting wow. down for lunch. And, uh, we were going to have dinner that night and I just backed out and I told, I told, uh, I, I told the executive, I can't do this. You know, this, there's this, he's in deep pain. He's, he's troubled. He's, a, he's an alcoholic, and he doesn't know, he has no consciousness. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where his pain comes from. Or if he does, he's certainly not going to talk to me about it. And he certainly doesn't want a movie made about it either. So I can't tell, I can't tell a story on the surface. You know, that should be a documentary. Um, but it has, a, it has a no last act. It has a very sad ending there because he seemed like an incredibly sad person. Mm. And uh, it was... Maybe, and so that was it. I think they hired a couple other writers to take a crack at it, and it worked out. And then two or three years later, um, I, I got a, uh, I, I read in Sports Illustrated that he went to the Betty Ford Center. Right. And it changed his life. And he came out, and, he, you know, Bob Costas wrote, wrote an article in, in the Sports Illustrated. And, and I remember thinking to myself, well, that's the movie. He now has the last act. He's come to consciousness. Yeah. You know, and he's he's really fessed up. And he also helped two of his other sons get, go into the Betty Ford Center themselves. One of the sons and the, and the, his wife 
had been there, and they convinced him to go. But he he became, you know, a true believer in how it changed his life, and he lived in the truth. And I thought that there was a movie there, and I was I never pursued it, but I I got a call from the producer, a guy named Larry Melly, who was friends of the family, and he said. Um, I was thinking about your comment about there was no last act. You have a last act now. Are you interested in doing this? The family um, had a great deal of admiration for you walking away from that uh, film mm-hmm. for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let's let's have a meeting and let me lay out where uh, what what my parameters would be if I write this. Um, and I, it was there were three of them. One was I had to tell the truth. I had to tell everything, warts and all. Uh, secondly, I, I had to direct myself. I didn't want to hand it over to somebody else. And third, I needed to talk to somebody at the Betty Ford Center. I need to know. I don't know anything about the 28-step program, mm-hmm. although my brother uh, and sister had, you know, had done, who you know, were had issues in, in the addiction world, mm-hmm. and um, had not done Betty Ford in 28 days, but had been going to meetings. And so I, I, um, <clears throat> everything was satisfied. They said yes to everything. And it was arranged with the president or the head of uh, Betty Ford that I go into the Betty Ford clinic, um, as a patient called it. I, I, it, I think it's called professionals and residents, okay. which is they do it for therapists. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of understanding the process by walking in the patient's shoes. Hmm. So I did that for five days and, I was also assigned to um, to uh, Mickey's um, uh, group therapy leader and the person who guided him, you know, in the, during the 28 days. And um, they signed a release of confidentiality so that the the counselor could talk to me about what what happened with him and and how he, you know, how he changed over that 28 days. And it was it was that was the movie. That was the movie. So I. I wrote a script that was basically flashbacks from the group therapy sessions, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, you know not necessarily chronological, but uh, it was about his own constant you know coming to consciousness and, and personal growth and how the external hero wasn't ultimately didn't ever feel like a hero internally, but he internally felt like a hero when he finally got sober. And unfortunately, I lived another year, so I never got to talk to him after that. Mm. But um, uh, that's the script I wrote. And, it, it, you know, I wrote it for 20th Century Fox, and, and <laughs> the president of Fox said, everybody loves this script, but it's so dark. It's so depressing. Right. I said, well, it ends well. It ends very positively. And he comes to his truth with his own, you know, the key was his relationship with his father, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the the and and he said, too dark, too dark, too dark. If you, unless you can get Matt Damon or Brad Pitt to do it, uh, we we can't do it. And it was submitted. I know, I know both of them, and and it was submitted to both of them, and and their response was appropriate in this way, uh, which is they were in their, I think they were in their mid to late twenties, and they said we could, this need this movie needs to be double cast. You need to have a young Mickey uh, yeah. when he was vibrant and such a superstar. And then sure. you needed the 61-year-old Mickey who was dissipated, who was destroyed, who who looked like death warmed over when he when he got into the Betty Ford Center. He said, 
and the, the young Mickey is not that interesting. <laughs> I mean, right, it's not, right. there's not, it's not that complicated. There's an Academy Award in the older. Mickey. <laughs> so right. that's why they passed on it. You know, it's, as I said, we've had various, uh, uh, people have, have almost gotten it made. have almost have fi- trying to figure out how to get it made all these years. And, we still can't, but we're, we've never stopped trying. Do you, do you think it's... I can, I can tell you it's in the hands of somebody who can get it made right now. Really? That's how close we are. Wow. So, I mean, and as you said, you've gotten to step 13 or 14 out of 15 many times. Do you do you feel confident in any way that this is ever going to get made? Well, let me just tell you about what I learned about being in the film business for 45 years, yeah. which is... You are never confident <laughs> that anything will ever get made, yeah. but you are always hopeful. Okay, okay. And you always believe there's a possibility. Wow. Uh, I think that I've gotten four movies made, and I've written five scripts that are better than those four movies. Mm. I'm convinced of that. Wow. So it's just, uh, sometimes it's totally random how movies get made. Somebody with uh, deep pockets has an inkling uh, and then just writes a check based on who knows i mean look the fact the only reason hoosers got made was there was a the, we were turned down for three years by everybody and then a, a brit from south london who had never gone to college um and had a bunch of laundered mafia money and <laughs> he came across his script and he had never seen a basketball game he had never heard of the state of indiana but yet his father was a drunk and this producer was with money this producer was a soccer player and a boxer and his dad would show up at his events and embarrass him come on the field and yell at the referee so the shooter relationship with his son hit him in a deep place and he cried all the way through the script he said anytime i cry in a script i'm gonna i'm gonna try to get made so he gave us he gave us the $6 million, and we never saw him on the set. Never, he said, I don't know how to make movies. You go make it. It's random. It's totally random like that. Listen, your life changed not necessarily because you wrote Hoosiers, but because it got made and became a hit. So my last Correct. my last question for you, Angelo, is this. If you had if you had written the same movie, if, if Hoosiers never became a hit, it's the exact movie that you made, that you wrote and made, but never caught on. Would you have been satisfied with what you wrote as this fictionalized telling of the Milan High story that you had so badly wanted to write for you know almost two decades? Would you have been satisfied with it as an endeavor if nobody had ever heard of it? Well, that's a that's a complicated question to answer, <laughs> and I will say that when you're when you're creating something from nothing, you know, basically looking at blank pieces of paper, and then you're filling them with the movie in your mind, you're just hoping to be able to share that movie uh, with, with other people. And, you know, sometimes it can only be in script form. Sometimes we get the chance of, of making it, bring it to the film form. And there are a lot of obstacles in the way of, of making it all the way to the end, exactly the way in which you want it. But I can tell you that have I had frustrations? I've had tremendous number of frustrate as i said i've written 35 or so scripts so mm-hmm. that's like 31 disappointments of of films that i believe 100 percent in are not getting made but um the fact that i've had the chances four different times uh makes me believe that 
it can hack and get the phone call any day, and it will continue to happen. That's just the reality that one has to accept. Yeah. Um, I, what I've been satisfied with the, the end product, if, if Hoosiers was just a script and not a movie, um, I did. I, I just say it's hard to even imagine a scenario <laughs> because yeah. Hoosiers so changed my life. Yeah. I would probably be an executive or a producer and not a writer if, if Hoosiers didn't get made. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be like, uh, to look back and see what could have happened. I just know that, um, you know, every day I'm, I'm working on three different screenplays right now. I, I believe every day what I'm writing is going to get made. Mm. So that's, that's all that I, uh, that's all that matters. The, the belief and the commitment to what I'm working on at the present. And if it translates, if my feeling in, in the movie, in my mind, translates to other people's passion at the time, that's great. But I've done the best I can. I, I just want this one opportunity to say one thing to you, if I may. Don't get caught watching the paint dry. <laughs> well, I can tell you, if you want to hear a story about that line. Sure. Um, that it wasn't in the script. Ah. And uh, Dennis, Dennis had a difficult time uh, remembering lines, and uh, and uh, he he went down into you know give this uh, team you know their final instructions uh, about uh, you know the picket fence, and and um, and I remember I actually I'm blanking out on what the line was. It was some kind of coach speak um, uh, cliche line. And he couldn't think of it. And uh, he finally came up with this line, scrambling, don't get watching the paint dry. I remember we were in, uh, watching on the video monitor. And I, was, I looked over at David and said, what does that mean? <laughs> don't get caught watching the paint dry. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, so we, we walk over to Dennis. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't, re- I couldn't remember the line. It's such and such and such. I said, yeah, but he said, I kind of like it. Where did you come up with it? He said, oh, my dad used to tell me that all the time. So that's, just, that's how, you know, random good fortune can happen. My thanks to Angelo Pizzo for letting me fanboy about my favorite sports movie ever. I'll even place it on my Mount Rushmore of all-time favorite movies ever, alongside The Shawshank Redemption, The Untouchables, and A Few Good Men. That Mantle screenplay, well, I've read it. Angelo was kind enough to share it with me after our conversation, and the story is just as he described. The damaged, older version of Mantle looking back on his past triumphs and tragedies and coming to grips with his demons. There are some particularly juicy supporting roles if this film ever gets made for the characters of Mickey's father, Mutt Mantle, Casey Stengel, and Billy Martin. Even with all the documentaries that have been made about Mantle's life, this is a film that dives into some new ground, and we can only hope that one day it gets made. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 30 with Murdy as much as I did. Uh, Some more content like this will be available in the coming weeks as we get our sports fix in place of real sporting events. I hope you all stay safe and join me for some more fun conversations along the way. You can check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com. And if you listen there on Apple Podcasts or on other services, please be sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.